there's still, there we go. It's coming, it's coming in. Um, serve as a local pastor in NEG, but really grateful uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, I tend to be that kind of forgetful guy, you know, where I forget to turn stuff on, and I don't know. Somewhat scattered today, I think, as well. But um, just feeling scattered, I don't know. Um, so maybe I should just pray about that right now, right? That's what, what you should do, especially if you have to speak to a group of people. You should probably pray about the fact you feel scattered. Um, Lord, um, I feel scattered right now. Um, I pray that you would uh, arrange my thoughts, that you would uh, meet us in this place and you would use this time, um, like Rob prayed, Lord, for your spirit to, to, to make contact uh, with our hearts and do something that we can't do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so <clears throat> we're gonna have you do a little thought exercise to get the, the wheels turning in your head. What are the communities, by way of asking a question, and the question is this, what are the communities that you have been part of over the course of your life and which you have experienced the most change? Okay, what communities have you been a part of that you've experienced the most change? And this could be like, you know, emotional change, spiritual change, deep transformation. What are those communities for you? Think about that for a second. In my case, I can think of a few. Um, at different uh, phases. I currently should probably start by saying I think I'm in one of the most formative communities I've ever been a part of. So thank you for being, uh, many of you in community with me uh, here at Church 31. It's been, it's been five years now for me. It's been great, very formative, very deep, um, and powerful and impactful. But for the sake of this illustration, I'm gonna compare two other communities I've been a part of. Um, I was at McGill uh, University for uh, four years there, and there I was part of the mining engineering program, so I was part of a community there, and that was, it wasn't too big of a program, there's about 20 students, very diverse, and that was a very formative time in a particular way, formative in the sense that, you know, I, I learned a lot, you know, I was educated, as they say, edumacated. Um I had friends from diverse backgrounds, so I learned a lot about like different cultures and so on, had really crazy conversations, good ones with people, and, um, well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of about it. And then after that, I was part of another community in the UK. And it was also a university community. It was also about 20 or so students. But this was one of the deepest communities I've also ever experienced. Um, and I think in it, it wasn't just that we shared um, a common interest, you know, mining, you know, rocks and shovels and big trucks. You guys, it's big trucks. Somebody this morning, I said mining, and they're like, oh, yes, pickaxes. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's not that anymore. Um, so we didn't just share like a love or an interest in pickaxes, okay? In this other community, we shared a deep love of Jesus and in turn each other, okay? And the big questions of life. Um, and so we would, you know, be up late all hours asking each other questions, being in pubs with like skeptics and talking about the meaning of life, sharing food together. We really shared our lives together. And so much so that one of the things that stands out in my mind from that year was just this, well, day, but what led up to it was my buddy Dan said he was gonna, he wanted to propose to his girlfriend who was also living there at the time and in the UK. And we just helped him plan his engagement. It just seemed normal. We're like, okay, we'll help you plan this thing. And of course, we planned ourselves all into it. So <laughs> there, you know, she comes into the quad of the university's like gorgeous 
old architecture. And she walks through, and we're like classmates standing on either side holding these little hearts with nice little messages. And then my buddy Dan comes out from behind this pillar at the end, and he's like got the rose and the ring. It was also very nice, okay? But <laughs> Dan said that he wanted us to be part of his engagement because we had become family to him. And he didn't want us to miss enjoying this pivotal moment in his life, right? This moment of love. And I look back on that now and I'm like, oh, that's interesting because most engagements are private things, right? And that's fine. That's okay. But Dan, Dan, he wanted to share that moment with us. It just almost seemed natural for us to be a part of it because we had that deep commonality. We had that, that shared love. We were so close in that way. And so that, that, instance becomes almost illustrative of me, to me, of that community that we were a part of that was so deep, it was so formative to me. Now, what is it about these communities that make them formative in that way? You might have heard things in what I was saying, but what is it about these communities that make them so deeply formative? And why is it that for years you can go on in a community and not grow? and then suddenly you start to grow, right? And this could be you transitioning from one to another or the same community. We're talking, you know, spirit-filled communities, communities that have good doctrine and good practice, right? They like can explain their Bibles to you and they're, they're reading and praying and resting, Sabbathing well, like good spiritual disciplines. Imagine all of that is held in constant. What is it about it that in one case you'll grow and in one case you'll stagnate? What's the difference there? I think the difference, if we're gonna pin it, and what we'll see in the text today is love. Love. Love enables us to grow. And it's having a deep love, a deep bond with God and with each other that enables us to flourish and to change. And without it, we will wilt. We will wilt. So love, like it becomes this nutrient in the soil of our lives, an essential nutrient by which we can grow up and flourish, and without which we will wilt. Wilt. We're in a series called Lament and Joy, and we've been looking at examples and tools and resources to deal and process through intense emotional states, like um, lament and grief and sorrow. Last week, we looked at joy and sorrow. This week... I'm gonna be tying up this series by looking at the topic of love. Love enables us to stay together through all of these really intense emotional states, to stay resilient and actually even to grow, okay? That when you have a secure love in God and community that you can remain resilient and grow. It's like an essential nutrient in the relational soil of your life. That is what love is. And that's what we're gonna look at today. Okay, so where does that love come from and how is it shown? That's what we're gonna, that's the overall trajectory. Where does this love come from and how is it shown? Where do we get this deep love that's gonna, you know, be like a nutrient in our soil and enable us to grow? Because we do wanna grow. We don't wanna just stagnate and stay the same, do we? Thanks, we don't. The congregational reading was from 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 7. And I'll just invite you to turn to it if you didn't have a chance before. Um, and that's because I, I go like bit by bit, right? And so when you can see it for yourself, that helps you follow along. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 reads this. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So where does love come from? Well, we see an answer in our text. Before we say that answer just straight out, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered where does love come from? Because if you think about it, right, we all talk about it like it exists. Like love exists, yes, of course it exists. But you can't see it. It's not like something you can put in a test tube and like measure, right? And on top of that, we've all experienced times in our life in which we had a relationship with somebody or in relationship, and they were extremely difficult to love. Like it just didn't seem like... Man, like the more you tried to like dredge, dig down and pull some love out, man, there's just nothing left to give. Where does love come from, right? Is it just chemicals in our brain or is there more to it than that? Because we all continue to live as if it exists, even though we can't see it. In fact, we, we pursue it, we seek it, we value it, we fight for it with our whole lives. Where does love come from? Here's what Christianity says. That if you believe in love, an invisible, transcendent source of power, it's not that big a step to believe in God, an invisible, transcendent source of power who is the personal source of that love. That's who God is. Where does love come from? Verse 7, let us love one another for love is from God. That answers our question. Love comes from God. And verse 8 elaborates. It says that God is love. That means that God is love in who he is, in his very essence or in his being. In fact, Christians will think deeply about this and theologize, right? And they say, well, it's out of that love, love in God's essence. God is love. That joyful shared love between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's out of the overflow of that love, that boom, here we are. You and me and the material of the chair you're sitting on in this universe, a joyful overflow of the creative and love of God. That's where we come from. That's who God is. This is what it means. God is love. One of the implications of it. He shared it in himself, that joyful shared love. Now, does this mean that if God is love, that love is God? Right? You might have gotten that impression from what I said earlier, like there's a step between love and then you just, well, you just sort of notch it up a bit and believe in God. Is love God? Well, no. No, love is, love is not God. Love is relational. You need beings to share love with in order to have love. And so if love is God, the universe would be impersonal. And if you had no beings in it, then there would be no love. And so it doesn't really make sense to say that love is God. No, God is Love. He's relational of his very essence. It's by and out of that relationship, that joyful shared love. You and I are created and exist. God is love. He's its source. And that's why John can say, for love is from God in this text. And then he goes on. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is an essential part of knowing God. It is. You know, I remember a few years ago, somebody shared this story with me, and I've heard this from a a few different people in different circumstances, but he basically said, you know, this was somebody who was exploring 
Christianity. They were kind of connected to our church, but they, you know, checking it out, sort of like drafting, you know, when you're like in the wind, but like just checking it out. And he got to this point where he, you know, he said, I guess I could pray. If God exists, will you show yourself to me? And so he prayed that prayer. And he's telling me the story, right? And he's saying, you know, I prayed that. And the next day it was so strange. I was on a bus and it just felt like, man, I have this intense love for all of these random people sitting on the bus. And it's like overcoming love. And he's like, I just couldn't figure it out. And I'm sitting there, I'm wondering. And then I remembered, I prayed that prayer. God, if you're real, will you show yourself to me? Help me to experience you. See, this was a mile marker on their journey of faith. See, knowing God changes the way that we see other people. It changes the way that we love. It changes the way we love. Love is an essential part of knowing God. And this is why, by the way, I can talk about love as like this essential nutrient in the soil of your life because you need it. You need it from God in order to grow, in order for you to change and be transformed. You need it. It's essential. It's from God. And if you haven't gotten the importance of the point, John just reverses it in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Or Jesus in the Gospel of John makes a similar statement. Whoever does not love me does not keep my commandments or my words. And so if you put these two statements together, you'll see that if, if you know Jesus, he's saying, if you know me, you will love me. And if you love me, you will obey me, right? You know me, you will love me, you love me, you'll obey me. And yet this raises a question that I've, I've heard a number of times um, as a pastor, and this is a good question, okay? And it's this. It's what if, what if as a Christian, what if I know, thinking about this progression of, you know, with the obedience piece at the end, what if this is evidence that I know I'm not loving God properly? Like, in other words, I have, like, this doubt or this sin that I'm struggling with in my life, and, or I'm just sort of apathetic generally, and I just can't seem to beat it. And so when I read statements like this of Jesus saying that, like, our love and our obedience flows out of evidence of us knowing God, I'm like, oh, like, do I actually know him? Do I actually love him? What am I to do about the fact I don't love God properly? Well, first off, I'd say this, and that is, it matters you care. That's a good question. In fact, that, that you be, would be even bothered to ask this question is a good thing. It is evidence that something is happening inside. Because if you didn't give a rip, right, if you're like, whatever, about knowing and loving and obeying Jesus, well, then you wouldn't even notice that you don't do it, right? But if you do love Jesus, as you grow in your love for him, as you journey in the journey of life with Jesus, in the way of Jesus, you'll begin to notice smaller and smaller things that he points out to you that you still haven't shown him love in, that you still haven't given over to him and his love. That's what I found as a Christian, as I've journeyed through life with Jesus, that more and more things will point out, oh, yes, oh, this too, you want this too? Yes, Lord, he wants that too. Like my finances, for, for years, that was a thing for me. I didn't love Jesus with my finances, and he had to show me that, right? And, but that's something to be thankful for. Lord, thank you for showing me that. Right, thank you, you've brought me to this point where you've shown me like this is evidence of the Spirit's work in me. And so it matters that you care. This is evidence of the Spirit's work in you. Thank God for that, right? And if you don't, if you're if you're listening to me sort of say like the evidence of you caring is a good thing and that matters, and you're like, I 
that's not the case for me. Well, part of what I'm saying is it's the spirit that brings that. It's the spirit that brings conviction to you, not you. And so pray and ask God for that. Lord, I know I should care. I don't care. Help me to care. And he will. He'll meet us in that place. That's what I've known in my own life. He will help you care more. So it's important you care. Second is, remember who showed you love first. And it wasn't you. It was God. That's in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for sin. See, it wasn't us who showed love first. It was God. He made the first move. You know, <clears throat> when it comes to me talking about how I first met my wife, I like to say, like, or at least paint the story like I showed love first. So that I, I'll often talk about when I'm telling this story, there was like that first sort of four years where I'd pass her in the hallway at McGill at university, and I'd be like, hey, and she would just like, whew, like walk right by. Like she didn't even see me. But here's the reality, people. Here's the reality that there were signs of hope. She responded to some of my text messages with little smiley faces. She met me at a cafe, all right? And on my birthday, she brought me a special cupcake, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and that was the point that I had enough evidence to tell that she was interested and that I could tell her I was interested in her. But God's love is not like that. I say this to say God's love is not like that. He didn't wait for evidence of our interest in order for him to make a move. See, even when there were no signs of hope, even when there were no smiley faces in our text messages to God, nonetheless, he still pursued us and showed us love when we didn't have an ounce for him. That's the case with Jesus. In fact, the Bible extends that picture so much further. He says that even when we were enemies of God, far off, estranged, nonetheless, he still pursued and loved us. And this is so important, guys, for us to remember when we are struggling in our love for God as Christians, that his love is not dependent on our ability to love him. It's not. He made the first move. In this is love. Not that we love God. No, we didn't have an ounce of love. But that he loved us. He loved us. And so what are we to do if we are struggling with the fact, the evidence is in, I don't love God properly. Well, it matters that you care. And remember that even when you didn't have an ounce of love for Jesus, he still loved you. And he showed it through sending his son. See, why... Why when you were an enemy and a far off from God, and yet Jesus still loved you, why if that was the case then, would he not love you now when you do love him and you are trying to pursue him? Why would he not love you now? If that was the case then, it's still the case now. He still loves you now with the same force and power and lavish beauty over you. That is still the case. That has not changed. And in fact, to extend this, he sees the holiness and perfection of his son in you. If you are in Christ, that is who you are. You are holy and beloved by God. That's what the scripture says. That's who you are. You need to know that. And so you know what? When you struggle with sin, you know what you need to say to it? Talk back to it to say, that's not me. That's not who I am anymore. I have died to that. My life is hit with God in Christ, and I am in him. That's not who I am anymore. I am new in Jesus. That's who I am. I've been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. Speak back to it. 
Take hold of the power that you have in Christ in the spirit to resist that sin. It is possible in Christ. How do we know that? How do we know that we have this in Christ? Where does that all come from? It's this next phrase. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. That's what makes it all possible. See, what's propitiation? What's propitiation? That's a toughie, right? We never use this word anymore. It's, that's why I stumble over it. When was the last time you heard somebody say propitiation outside of the church, right? You, you heard someone? Well, you said it this morning. We're, see, we're in a church. We're in, we are the church, but we're using the word. You had to look it up. That's right. <laughs> what does this word mean? It means to appease a terrible problem. In our case, the terrible problem of sin and the person to be appeased is God. The example from the Old Testament, of course, would be the sacrificial system, the ritual and sacrifices, okay? There was a form of propitiation for the sin of the people to God. So when it comes to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, this is the image that John chose to use to talk about this is what Jesus accomplished. He, he propitiated for us. You know, like, why did John use that image? I mean, there's lots of images to talk about what Jesus has done for us, right? There's images of, of adoption, like he has adopted us into his family. Jesus was estranged for us in the cross so that we could be adopted into his family. There's family stuff. He could use family language. He could talk about Mar- in the Marcus marketplace terms, right? There's family, there's marketplace, like we were you know, in debt and slaves to God and he buys us back. Or he could talk about it in, in court terms, like we were in, uh, we have broken the law and there's a verdict and he cancels that and he justifies us. Why then does John, in, in a passage about love, use the language of propitiation, which is the language of ritual and sacrifice, as opposed to the language of adoption and family? Why would he use that language? Isn't that interesting? Well, here's what I think is the reason. It's because John wants us to see in the context of love, right, that the greatest demonstration of love is God giving himself for us. It's self-sacrifice. He is using the language of ritual and sacrifice because the greatest demonstration of the greatest possible ethic is self-sacrifice in love. And that's what Jesus has done for you. And that undergirds all of the love that we have. It comes from him. This is why John uses this language. Isn't that neat? And because of this, because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus has propitiated the Father on our behalf, he has earned the favor of God on our behalf. Guys, we can trust him. This is one of the implications. We can trust him. Because he loved you with his life to the point of death, you can now trust him with your life, right? You're secure in him. He's secure in the Father and you are secure in him. You can trust him with your life. He loved you to the point of death. And God is also pleased with Jesus for what he's done. He's earned the favor of God by propitiating. And so if we attach our lives to Jesus, if we bind up our lives in him, if our lives are hid with God in Christ, what does that mean? God looks at us and he sees Jesus. He looks at us and everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. His holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, all of that stuff I was saying earlier is now true of you. It is. That's who you are. And that means you have security in Christ You have intimacy in Christ, the same intimacy and security that is is rightfully Jesus's and earned by him, the blessing of the cross, is now attributed to you. That's who you are when you're bound up in Jesus, life hid with Christ in God. 
And you know what this does? This security, this intimacy that you can have in Jesus, this forms a secure bond. This is what it is. It's, it's love. It's love itself. That's a, it's love is attachment. You are secure in Christ. And that allows you to grow and mature in Christ. The joy and the love, the security and the intimacy that you have in him. And yet we often doubt that. We often doubt that bond, that deep attachment that we have with God. We doubt our security and our intimacy with him. And we do it, I'm going to say, two different ways. I feel like I've been a Christian long enough or I've been around the church long enough to say that I've, I've seen this in sort of two different main ways. And one is that when it comes to our security and the intimacy we have in God, we can have a super deep sort of like anxiety about that. We say, well, yeah, I know like in my mind, like theologically, I have intimacy and security in him. But when I pay attention to what's going on inside, like sort of hear this thing like, Voices sort of telling me things like this, like, he loved me yesterday, but I don't know if he loves me today. Or I hear this, I know I want to be closer to God, but if he actually, if I was forthright about the issues and the problems I have in my life, then I think he would just, if I brought those to him, he would just sort of push me away. So we we have this like latent anxiety about our security in Christ. We don't actually feel what we know in our minds to be true. We're insecure in that way. We have this deep anxiety, and this can manifest in that way, a sort of deep anxiety about who we are, and I've seen that. And the other way, it's not us being so much anxious about who we are, it's that we just avoid going too deep, right? And in this case, Often, you're practicing your faith seriously. I mean, you're going through the motions, but you're going through them well. But when it comes to this question of like having intimacy in Christ, you say things like, well, yeah, I do want more of God, but I don't really think the experience of God and that whole intimacy thing you're talking about, like being like cuddly with Jesus, like I don't know what that is. Like that's just not for me. I'm just not that kind of person. In fact, where I am going through the motions with God, it works for me. I'm okay, except for when things go wrong. Then I get angry at God. But other than that, I'm okay. And so we sort of have this this avoidance of God or this anxiousness of God. And here's what I'd say of these two things, okay? That I am not by me reasoning with you here, going to be able to help you through that so much. That is much less an intellectual problem, and that is much more a deep experiential problem of the heart. But what I can do is talk to you about Jesus and try and lead you by the hand back to him, that you would see his face. Everything we were talking about last week, that he wants to make his face shine upon you. If you would only turn and look to him, he's not anxious. Like, you don't need to be anxious about him. You don't need to be fearful that he's going to push you away because of something, some issue or sin or struggle in your life. No, that's not the father's heart. He wants to take you and hold you close and never let you go. You are secure in him. That's who he is. He'll never let you go. That's my Jesus. That's a real experience of him. When you meet him, you'll know that. Like, no, know that. And he wants to have that intimacy with you. You don't need to hold him off. It's not like having intimacy with Jesus is just for certain types of people. 
No, that can be for you too. You can approach him. You can draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He delights to. See, when you encounter the living God, that impacts all of you, body, soul, and spirit. And you can experience God. That's what he, Jesus says in John 14, I will manifest myself to you. I will evidence myself to you. That is a promise of God for the believer. You can know God in intimate and meaningful ways. There's no need to be avoiding him. Time that you spend here at Church 21, for however long it is, I hope it's long, are the most formative years of your life. That you grow deeply in your attachment to Jesus and to each other. And you grow up and you bear fruit. That's what he wants. That's what Jesus wants for you. And that's possible. You don't have to leave this community to get that. I know this is happening in our people. I hear about it. I experience it. You don't have to go anywhere else. It starts with you being a place, being a person of love. By you receiving the love of Jesus and then giving it out freely as he's given it to you. Let's pray that the Spirit might impress that on us now. Lord, I thank you that you meet us in this place. That we're these insecure people. We struggle with anxiousness. Even when we're in Christ, Lord, we struggle with anxiety, wondering, Lord, if we can run into you and be safe. And you are. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would meet us where we're at this morning. That if anybody is struggling with being vulnerable before you, they would see that they can and they are safe in you. You will never let them go. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who's, who's holding you off, who's avoiding deep intimacy with you, Lord, would you show them first that it's possible to have intimacy with you? And second, Lord, it's so much better. Oh, Lord, would you meet them in that place? Come, Spirit of God. Make us a people who are joyful and secure in our attachments with you so that we grow up and we show this to the world. We need you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.